welcome to the False Neutral Podcast for September of 2019. I'm Pete. Garrett and Eric are both with me this month. Uh, we did not do a workshop update last month because uh, Garrett wasn't with us, and he's usually the only one that has <laughs> workshop stuff to update. But actually, all three of us have managed to do some significant things in our workshops in the past month. Thank you to uh, Steve Foe for being our guest last month. Which one of you guys want to jump into our workshop update? Oh, I might as well start it off. You weren't here uh, last month, so you, you get the floor. Yeah, yeah. I broke the streak of us not having continual full podcast members, but oh well. So I finished the airbox on the RZ, if you can believe that. And it's pretty exciting. Over the last couple months have been trying to design an airbox that worked and also just learn how to use my 3d printer and figure out how to best print with different filaments which was kind of a steep learning curve uh you know usually when people are doing models they print in this certain kind of plastic filament that's um it's really easy to print with but it's also not very strong so you don't really want to use it for uh, like an actual usable part. So I needed to print the airbox that I came up with out of ABS plastic, which is heat resistant and strong and has all the properties that I want, but it's notoriously difficult to print with, especially on larger prints like an airbox. It likes to warp um, when it cools down. So the filament prints through an extruder that's like 250 or 240 degrees Celsius. And then um, the bed of the printer is heated to about 110 Celsius. So the plastic stays hot, but when it's in there a long time, uh, and if it's not in a heated enclosure environment, it just likes to warp up off the bed and it turns into a mess. So I had to go through a bunch of trial and error to figure out how to print this airbox without having those warping problems. Um, but I did, and you guys probably saw the photos that I shared with you. Um, really, really impressive <clears throat> yeah, photos. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I originally, my original, original idea was to print a new top for the existing airbox, because that kind of solves some of the problems with, you know, where to mount a battery and some other things, because all of that is included in the bottom half of the original airbox, like the battery right. mount. But it was also going to be kind of a challenge to just print a top to the original airbox. So I thought I would, you know, kind of just do it all custom so that's why i originally had printed kind of a two into one air intake and was going to build a box around that um but then just went back to the original idea printed a new box i had to do it in several pieces and also several segments and each segment multiple pieces uh it, it was kind of a challenge to get it engineered properly and also to find an air filter worth using so now the the RZ will use a K1600 GT air filter, you know, which those have a lot of power. So clearly I won't have any uh, limitation for airflow with it. I just bought a K&N air filter just because I didn't want a paper, like a, an OEM type paper air filter in it. So I got a K&N filter uh, and kind of just designed the air box around that air filter within the confines of the you know, the frame tubing and everything else. It, it looks like you've got several horizontal 
layers that need to be bonded together and you did them in halves. So you got seams running vertically down the middle of each one of those pieces. Um, yeah, each segment. So there's the bottom part of the air box, which is only about three quarters of an inch thick. And it is in three pieces that got epoxied together. And it mounts with the original mounting screws to the air box. There's a second piece that's kind of tall. It's um, almost four inches tall. That's to give the air filter enough height over the battery because the battery is actually kind of recessed into the air box. Right. The air filter itself was too wide um, to fit in between the battery and the frame rail. So it had to actually be up elevated a little ways. So um, in that part, I designed mounting tabs into it. So basically the bottom part and the, the part that actually holds a filter sandwiched together, but they actually each has corresponding mounting tabs. So they just mount together with screws and there's a little foam gasket that goes in between them. There's just like a, a simple top part that just makes sure the element doesn't come out of it. The air filter element. You actually said you epoxied the, the different sections that you printed together, or did you use a plastic welder or uh, epoxy? Okay. Yeah. It's you know perfectly durable enough for what I'm using it for. And, you know, it's also kind of a prototype. So I wanted to see how this was going to work out before getting, you know, too crazy. And I'm not even sure what the process is for plastic welding. Is is that a thing people do? You basically have a kind of a, a pinpoint hot air gun. Yeah. It's like a regular hot air gun, but it, it's got a nozzle that comes down really narrow. And it's got a kind of a little chute that feeds into the tip. They have different chutes, triangular and rectangular and round. And you can get, you know, high-density polyethylene or ABS or whatever you want. And you basically just do it like a regular metal welder. You put this little trowel right down in your groove with the hot air blasting in there, and it melts, and the filler material that you've got in the chute melts, and then you just kind of push it in like kind of a hot glue gun while you drag it along. And it, it takes a little bit of skill to get it the right speed, but if once you get a feel for how quickly to do it and how hard to push on your filler material, it just kind of runs in there. And it's really a lot like welding because it huh. actually bonds your filler material and the two pieces together. And the slower you go, uh, the more penetration you get. Yeah. And interesting. it, it, uh, I know, uh, I had a friend of mine when I worked at the motorcycle dealership that, uh, kind of on the side would uh, flip sport bikes and he fixed fairings like yeah. that all the time. He would just, you know, take a, a little uh, Dremel tool with a, with a bit and grind out a V on the back of the crack. Mm -hmm. He would tape it together with like duct tape. Right. And then go on on the backside and just run this filler material down there if you wanted to, you could sand it down, but it's still what is going to be obvious that you've done something to it. Yeah. So he would just leave it. He, he said, you know, you get a little mound out of the filler material, but it actually makes it stronger than the plastic around it. So yeah, do that and kind of just fill it in with some like uh, high buildup or high, uh, yeah, high thick build. primer and sand it down and paint it. And yeah. from the outside, you'd never know it. And it it's as strong as if it hadn't cracked. Yeah. Interesting. 
I've heard of people using acetone with ABS. So uh, acetone just like eats ABS really quickly, but people can, um, they'll take parts printed in ABS and suspend it over um, heated acetone and the vapor smooths the finish and it ends up looking like an injection molded part. So like the part that I printed, you can see all of the layers were like printed and people will use kind of like this acetone um, process and it smooths the part so you can't even see in any of those individual layers and it ends up making it look really, really good. So yeah, I wanna I wanna scuba mask <laughs> while yeah. that's going on, you know? Yeah. Vapors yeah, from yeah. acetone. No, yeah. no. Yeah, usually people do that in a environment that's, you know, probably not next to them when they're breathing, but yeah. So, yeah, I'll give that a try. And so, um, yeah, I have probably the only RZ in the world with a BMW K1600 GT air filter. So I think it's kind of cool to, you know, keep the stock air box and still have a performance air filter. We uh, we will have to post these pictures on our yeah. on Hooniverse and on our Facebook feed because it came out really well. How long did it take you oh. to create the, the 3D model? Because you did all kinds oh, of nice a little... Long fill- time little fillets around where the screws go in and stuff like that. I mean, this yeah, it's a really sophisticated 3d shape that you create. It's, it looks like about it's a actually, print. it's nothing compared to what I could have done if I weren't printing it, because when you print it, you have to work within the confines of that printer and 3d printing doesn't lend well to like the geometry that I would like to put into this air box. Uh, so like some of the smoothing, um, I put in there where, you know, didn't make any difference at all. But there were other um, kind of fillets and things where I would have put in if it were being like molded rather than printed. Uh, but yeah, I would say, goodness, just to come up with a finished design, because I had to kind of redesign this thing several times. I probably have 20 to 30 hours into CAD design, I would say. That, um, that's the thing that blows me away is people who are really good at it, who can create really sophisticated, complex shapes really quickly. Yeah. You know, I, I really, compared to most people, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and I when I work on projects like this, I end up learning a ton. So I feel like I get better every time I design, design something. But some of those people can just make the most complicated shapes with like really minimal keystrokes because like if you know the workflow of how to do it, it just makes it the program does a lot for you. You just have to know how to do it. And Yeah, and I think for... it uh, some of it depends on the program that you have. I've got uh Viacad at home, but I've got the cheapy 2D 3D version. There's Viacad Pro that I have at work and then they've got two levels of that above it that are like really pro grade mm-hmm. and they can do all kinds of, you know, blend shapes together automatically based on one or two little splines. And then you can, something. You know, I was like, yeah, mine doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, so now that the air box is done on this RZ, I'm going to uh, finish up the throttle cable for it. And then um, really it's just the air box and the throttle cable are the two things that are were left that required like thinking um the throttle cable so i am using aftermarket key and carbs on the motorcycle but i want to retain the stock throttle itself which originally is a push pull throttle 
Um, the key-ins are obviously just a pull cable. They don't have a push-pull mechanism. So I called um, Wicked Motorsports, and there's a guy that runs it named Roger. And he's a super cool guy, and he really specializes in performance RZ stuff. And he has cables made for adapting PWK carburetors um, to a you know stock RZ, but mm-hmm. he wanted two hundred and fifty dollars for his throttle cable, and I'll sooner build my own and source my own parts than pay that much money for a throttle cable. So he was really nice. It was just a little too rich for my blood. So. I got a throttle cable for um, one of the earlier European model RZs, which has the right ends on it. It's just my oil injection cable needs to be changed. Uh, so at any rate, I'm going to be able to piece together a throttle cable with, you know, basically taking parts from three different cables and putting them together to make one that works. And it'll be a lot less money than $250. And then I'll be <laughs> able to, you know know what to do the next time I want a cable because I still have another RZ that I need to work on. So uh, so I'll get that throttle cable um, finished and then I can just put the whole rest of the motorcycle together and finally start it up and go ride it. So it's really close. Gee, I mean, that's all you did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how long have well, I been working on this it's, now? It's very impressive. Yeah, it's um, it, it, I'm super happy with the way it turned out. Thank you. So, well, let's hear about your guys' projects. Well, Pete sure. not only finished something, he sold it then. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that was, was that was that was the big reveal that uh, the when we last talked to you guys, I was most of the way done with the CL125, my resto mod project that really was not intended to be that involved. And I was thought I was about done when the fork started leaking, even though I had put new seals in them and new gaiters on them. And so all of a sudden I was just without explanation, had a puddle underneath my front wheel. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So fortunately it's the same forks from a CT 90 from a, uh, the CG125 that is like one of the most popular bikes in Asia. So I could literally go on eBay, hit the easy button and order an entire a set of complete reproduction forks. And I went to put them on and I realized that uh, everything worked except the springs. I had to use my old springs and uh, the tops of them where they went, they, there's actually a through bolt on top of the top triple clamp. And my old ones were round and these are hex, but the outside widest part of the hex was the same diameter as the round part. Mm-hmm. And it fits in an, in an inset relief. So I was like, okay, this thing has a top speed of about 56 miles an hour. So they're like 32 millimeter forks. They're flimsy anyway. So I was like, yeah, yeah, this is going to be fine. So I put them all together and took care of a lot of little niggling things that I was worried about. I put uh, glued foam underneath the seat so the battery couldn't contact the metal seat base and all kinds of little things like that. And I finally got to the point where I was kind of like, well, I guess I'm ready to start it up. And I had not done anything. I, the fuel tank, the fuel filter, the 
fuel valve, the carburetor, none of it had ever had fuel in it. So I kind of was like, am I really ready to do this? So I took about a day to think through, is there anything else I need to do before I fill this with a volatile liquid? Mm-hmm. And I kind of went, okay, I guess I'm ready. I poured some non-ethanol premium in it and rolled it out in the driveway. And I kicked and I kicked and I kicked and it wasn't certain. Oh, it really helps if you don't have the kill switch in the off position. Yeah. So I flicked the kill switch, kicked it first kick. It popped and sputtered and died. And then it was kind of flooded out because I'd kicked it so many times. So I took the spark plug out, took a little file, just, you know, wiped it off and cleaned it up a little bit, put it back in, kicked it. And it just purred. Didn't need any throttles start hot or cold, cold, you know, pull the choke on and kick and it would start hot leave the choke off, kick, and it would just settle down into an idle. I tweaked the air screw a little bit, but I didn't change any of the jetting in the carburetor. And this is a, it's a nibby carburetor. And a stock, it had a 22 millimeter key-in carb. And I got this 24 millimeter because the original carb is just horrendously expensive. Yeah, The jetting was perfect it didn't have any hesitation off idle. It would pull really strong, wide open. There was no hesitation. There was no flat spot. Wow. And it was running better than my old one even ever was. Yeah. I mean, the between having a, a more open intake, having a bigger carburetor, and having a more open exhaust, I was like, wow, this this really runs well. I was really impressed. I I took it out and I had changed so much on this. The The original idea was I wanted to have a trip down memory lane, nostalgia for the bike I had in high school. Well, when it got all done, by the time I got the thing running decently, it was a different tank, different instruments, different headlight, uh, different sound, different intake, different exhaust. I'd moved the seat back two inches. Everything was different about it but when i got on it it was still the same but it was like i i had this real strong memory of what it was like when i was 17 because i have three older sisters and we had three cars mom's car dad's car and one car for four kids and i was the youngest yeah i never could go anywhere without coordinating ahead of time mom i want to go out to a movie friday night can i have the car is there any way I can make this happen? So I was always negotiating to travel. You could either borrow mom's, borrow my sister's, whatever. All of a sudden, I bought this little bike, and I was like, I can, at a moment's notice, go anywhere I want in town. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to get anybody to say so. I can be home alone, decide I want to go, and just take off. And I was like, the freedom was just amazing. And I flashed back, sitting on this little 192-pound motorcycle with zero damping in the rear shocks mm-hmm. so it just it it kind of bounced three or four times over every little heave in the road but it all came back to me i was like wow this is great so what i bought the bike for it did i was like mission accomplished yep this this has <laughs> recaptured it i rode it about 50 miles and i was like now what am i going to do with it <laughs> is it going to hold together is something else going to break I got a whole bunch of other things I would like to be doing. Mm-hmm. I was so relieved that I didn't have to work on it. I had done what I wanted to do. And I was like, it's time to go to somebody else. 
So I posted it on Craigslist for about a thousand dollars less than I had into it. And that's not counting all the pieces that broke, you know, because I've been through six speedometers between the old used ones that immediately broke within two miles of when I had it on there or didn't fit or weren't accurate or whatever. Just the things I bought that were actually on it and the labor that I had, you know, the maintenance parts and stuff that I had done to it. I listed it the next day. I got a call. Guy was like, yep, I'm interested in it. He's got a CL350. He's he's real into uh, SCCA racing. He's a big car guy. He said, for some reason, I never got into bikes, but I bought a, a CL350 scrambler that I've been restoring, and I got it running, and my wife wants to go out and run around the neighborhood with me. And this is the perfect complement to it, because his wasn't perfectly original either. So I was like, "Yeah, hey, this is great. And he's like, you've already done... You know, the big battery, 12 volts, LED lighting. He's like, you've done all the things I would have done to it. And there were some little things. I was like, you're going to have to paint the the new seat brackets that I made because I never got around to spray painting them. They're just raw metal and kind of went through, you know, it doesn't have a reserve. When you're out of fuel, you're out of fuel. And he was like, none of that bothers me. I'll pay what you want for it. Because he took it down the road and he came back and he was like, wow, for a 125 that's really strong. I was like, yeah. So he was thrilled for it. I was thrilled to send it to him. I was thrilled to take something that has been five and a half years. Now it took me about six months to get the title sorted out, but I've actually been working on this for five years. Yeah. And it was like, you know what? It's running. It's running really well. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't look at it and go, Oh, I need to do this. Oh, that needs to help. It was like, I really did everything that it needed to be really functional. I did all the upgrades that I thought it needed. I didn't end up pursuing the disc brake option. You know what? These brakes work well enough for the speed that it goes. And I was just really ready to be done with it. Mm -hmm. He was thrilled. I was thrilled. I'm chalking the thousand dollars up to tuition in fabrication school because there is so much that I learned to do. Yeah, you know, in this process. (laughs) So I have a friend of mine that's like, I don't get it. This is this is the weirdest thing. You did all this and now you just sold it. I had my little trip down memory lane. I don't want it sitting in the garage unused and then the battery's flat and the carbs crusty and stuff because I didn't use it. Give it to somebody who wants to ride it every day. So, yeah, I mean, that's a decision that I made with that uh, Yamaha TX750. I put a huge amount of labor and effort into that motorcycle and ended up selling it for way less than I was into it. Um, But I also was always working on it and I just didn't really enjoy that. And it's like you talked about with the, the fork oil on the ground and, you know, you rebuild the forks and through no reason it just starts pouring out fork oil and it's like you always kind of have to do those kinds of things with these bikes and sometimes it's better to get your memories out of them and you know get the experience and then move on i was really 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 close to buying a new 250 or 300 Mm -hmm. to replace it and i sat down i was talking to sarah and she's like "If, if, if you want to great but you talk about how much you like riding your spider you said you're much more comfortable commuting on the spider. What are you going to do with this? You're not going to take long trips with it. What are you going to do with it that you're not doing now? 
And what it really came down to is I can wheel it out of the garage without having to move the truck and the mower. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, she said, anything you can do to be safer, uh, you know, the, the spider definitely is obviously it's still very dangerous, but it's safer than being on two wheels. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And I took a bunch of the money and started buying parts again for my Boltaco project. And I've kind of gotten re-energized on that one. So mm-hmm. uh, I assembled it with the twin rear, rear shocks for the first time, abandoned the, the monoshock because it was just, it was a compromise. It just was not going to work no matter how hard I wanted to make it work. So it's been 18 months in the back of the garage. So I kind of just pulled all the parts out. I have this really nice Boltaco 360 lower end and piston and head. The only thing I needed was the cylinder. Mm-hmm. So I bought a 350 Persang cylinder, which would have fit, but the cylinder studs are on different centers mm-hmm. and it wouldn't fit. Obviously the 350 doesn't work. Oh, here's a 360 Persang cylinder on eBay. That's only a year or two older than my cases. They're both 360s. This has got to work. I got it in the mail yesterday. I opened it up after work tonight. It's the same dang cylinder head stud spacing as the 350 per sang that I, so now I have spent like, I don't know, $400 on cylinders that don't fit my cases. I'm like, Oh, you know, I, 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 I'm almost to the point where I've got a chassis that goes together and I'm really eager about rebuilding an engine. And I really wanted to get to the point where I was going to simultaneously side by side, go through building two engines. Cause I've got a 200 CC engine and a 360. but now I've got these two stinking cylinders yeah. that I, I need to do something with and get my money back out of. And so that's what eBay's for. Actually, I may post them on Facebook. There's a couple of Boltaco user groups. I may see if anybody's interested there and then list them on eBay. Cause yep. last time I sold something on eBay, I was surprised how much between the listing fees, the selling fees. Yeah. It's yeah. very expensive. The, it, the shipping and everything. I was like, I didn't get nearly as much for that as I thought it was given the work I put into it. So yeah. Do you still feel like you made the right decision though? I have to ask a couple days, you know, after oh, selling. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. No remorse. It's like, I took a lot of pictures of it, Yep. and I look at them, I'm like, I didn't half-ass anything on it. Yep. I really, in fact, I had a whole list of things, uh, all kinds of stuff that I had been writing down over the last couple of days as I was kind of cleaning up and getting ready to sell it. You know, like having to repaint the, or, you know, put some paint on the, the seat brackets. And I had a complete custom wiring diagram i had changed the what the electric so much that i had on the computer i made a wiring diagram with all correct colors and what going where and where it was on the bike and printed off on a like a tabloid sheet of paper and the guy looked at it and was like mm-hmm. i have never seen anybody i don't even do this on my cars and it's like that was cool yeah i feel like i did it perfectly Good. i mean not perfectly because i really did not want to spend that much time and effort and years of working on a whole lot of things that I didn't intend to do. But when it got all done, I feel like I did what I wanted. I got the experience I wanted and I was kind of proud of the end result. So yeah, for sure. Good. Eric, I know you did a bunch. I did some. 
<laughs> Mostly disassembly. Um, I was going to monkey around with it some more just, just to eliminate everything, and then I decided to screw it. So I started uh, pulling it apart. A buddy of mine came over, and he just basically read the manual for like, nope, this order, you know, undo the heads and stuff like this. It actually came apart really easy considering it's a 40-year-old-plus 40, 40 motorcycle. Um, and you're like, okay, so it actually came apart relatively easy. Uh, but you can tell it sat for a while, and you can tell it's got some kind of problem because – the, the tops of the pistons looked okay. Uh, there was some buildup on it, but they weren't too bad. They I took a little bit of uh, brake cleaner and, and, a, and a brass brush and cleaned the tops off pretty quick. So they're, they're in good shape. Um, the cylinders, I, I, I got a, uh, a dingleberry hone, and I just got to go buy some transmission fluid and throw some transmission fluid in there and hone it out a little bit because... Um, there's a couple ridges in there. You can tell that it sat at a certain, uh, it sat for a long time because there's a very distinct line in one of the cylinders where like, this is where the rings were in that particular cylinder. It doesn't, it, it's not like rough or anything, but you can just tell it's just, it's been there. And, um, so I'm just going to run the home through it a couple times. I, just, I haven't had a chance to do Well, I've had a chance to do it. I've just haven't done it. Um, the cylinder heads got to come apart, and I borrowed uh, a valve spring compressor from a buddy of mine. But the um, the the top the the piece of metal that goes into the forks where you press down on the uh, on the valve so that you can compress it to pull out the um, the retainers uh-huh. is way too small. <laughs> Like it kind of fits over that. So I like every time I kind of get to a spot, I'm like, eh, and then it slips. Right. So yeah. it's like, ah, so yeah. I got to go. I was, I paid some bills today. So just to see how much money I've left over. Cause it's quarterly tax season. Um, and so I got to go into eBay or eBay onto Amazon and order a, a valve spring compressor kit. That's going to work for it. And, uh, it's only like 25 bucks. So I can't mm-hmm. bitch about it too much. So that's going to come apart and see, just kind of shape it. Is it? If you look at it though, there's one of the cylinders, like the the valves are just blacked up with carbon. So I'm curious to see how bad the underside of those valves are when yeah. uh, when I get it pulled apart. So yeah, that's that. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks I'll have that that sorted out. A buddy of mine whose stuff I borrowed actually just had back surgery, so he was going to come over and help, but he's like, um, yeah, I'm not real mobile. I'm like, yeah, no worries. Yeah. So. Well, maybe just some lapping compound on the valves yep. and, you know, a hone and maybe throw some rings on the pistons. And yep, I mean, I think it'll be just fine. Yeah, no, I've got uh, I got a valve lapping tool. I I think after the I think I forgot it was the last one we were all in together, but I ordered the uh, I ordered a gasket kit. I got it. I think I'm trying to think of the, the gasket kit I just got off of. Like I, I had to order from like three different places, like one, like two different places on eBay and then one from Mike's XS. Mm-hmm. So whatever I ordered from Mike's XS, that came pretty quick. And then um, the eBay stuff was a little wonky, but because like the the rings, if I wanted legit like OEM Yamaha rings from Japan, they were like sixty five dollars. Yeah. Um, but the aftermarket ones from China were like twenty five bucks. And I'm like. Right. 25 bucks it is (laughs) you know it's it's 
unless the metallurgy is like really bad, it's not the most complicated project yeah. you know, well, product in the world. It's just because they were OE, OEM and OEM packaging that, you know, original. Right. So that's that's right. why they were expensive. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, so I got all the stuff to put it back together. Uh, it should go back together pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but it's, yeah, just one of those things. And well, you know, it's the middle of September, so I'm not in the biggest hurries anymore other than just to button it up, get it to run then go hide it in the corner before the snow flies, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's made some progress and it's one of those things of, I'm sort of like Pete and like, I just want this thing back together and running. So it's done and mm-hmm. I, I can ride it a little bit because it's become such this thing of frustration that, like if it disappeared tomorrow, I almost don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that my father-in-law has been over a couple times and he see, he's seen it in the garage in a couple different states of uh, assembly and disassembly. And he's always asking about it. I'm just like, well, yeah, Tom, well, you sat in your garage for 30 years and didn't move. Right. So it's uh, it's got problems, Yeah. Uh, especially when you leave gas in the tank. <laughs> for sure. So. So, yeah. So it's just like, anyways. And then. um because by, well, by the time this airs, I will have had my fiftieth birthday, and uh, uh, my mother decided to be real nice to me and scratched me a check for my fiftieth birthday, like a, a substantial check, or what I would consider a substantial check. And I'm like, hmm. Well, we we talked about what it was going to be for, and I I gave her some things like, okay, this would be this, 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 and one of them was a motorcycle. And when I brought that up, she's like. Yeah, because it's enough. Just void that check. (laughs) Um, because it's enough. Let's just say it's enough to buy a reasonable Gen One Tuano. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what it's any before? So, but by the time we talk next month, hopefully, I will take in my first flying lesson. Yeah. Oh, cool. cool. Well, I I have to say, just the other night, uh, I have a twenty-year-old niece who wants to be a career pilot. Oh, and, now's the time to get in. Yep. Yeah, and, sure. and she uh, she recently, I don't know, probably six months ago, got her private pilot's license and she and her dad flew in. They, they live about, I don't know, 90 miles away or something like that. And so they flew in for dinner mm-hmm. and we live literally uh, two and a half miles from the mm-hmm. municipal airport in the little suburb that I live in. So. We went down, picked him up, took him out to a Mexican restaurant, had dinner, went back. And uh, I also have one of my old roommate in the army. Uh, he, after his kids left and he was an empty nester, he was a crew chief on Huey helicopters when he was in the army and always <laughs> said he wanted to learn to fly. And so after the kids were gone, he said, now's my time. So he got his private pilot's license and bought a quarter interest in a, uh, a collectively owned uh, Cessna 172 that's yeah. at his local airport. So he's got a plane that he's flying. So it seems like everybody's doing that. And I, I actually have about 40 hours of dual time that I've gotten various times in my life and always ran out of money before I soloed. I yeah. actually yeah. took lessons three different times and just about the time they were talking about, yeah, I think you're ready to solo was just <laughs> about the time I ran out of money and had yeah. to stop. That's why I haven't done tried tried to pursue it for a while. Um, I thought about it a couple of different times over my life, and just uh, the the advice has always been: get your ground school out of the way. That'll save you a ton of money. Just get as yeah. much done of that as you can, if not pass the test before you go, uh, and then just have the money set aside and just finish it. Because if you start and stop, it's going to take 
10 times as much money because yeah. you'll forget and forget what you learn and have to start over again almost. So, yeah. but, um, but yeah, so I've got, I won't, I don't have enough to like do the whole thing, but I should between that and some other money I've set aside, I should be able to at least get my private. So, but for yeah. your, is it your niece that you said? Yeah. Is 20? Well, yeah. well, it's technically, it's my wife's cousin's daughter. We call her okay. our niece, but she's yeah. actually our first cousin once removed on my wife's side. So, so the, so the statistic is in the next five or seven years, we're like 3000 pilots short in the United States oh, yeah, for, yeah. for commercial. Well, so whatever she's got to do to spend whatever money she needs to do to get through and do all that. Um, as soon as she gets like eight, gets her commercial and gets like 800 or a thousand hours, um, she can get hired and start making money. So yeah, yeah, yeah she originally wanted to be an airline passenger airline pilot, but now she's the, she goes to Oshkosh every year and she's oh, yeah. involved in the aviation explorers and, oh, yeah, yeah. uh, women in wings in the 99s mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. all through high school. She was, that's what she's always wanted to do. And, uh, she has talked to so many of them that she's thinking, you know, uh, corporate pilots yes. don't have to fly the same route every time. Yep. They don't have to deal with a lot of the, you're you know, dealing with the general public, you know, you are, but you're dealing yeah. with a smaller group of people every time you get to fly different kinds of aircraft. So she's like, maybe I'll do cargo. Maybe I'll do uh corporate flight work. And although yeah. corporate is usually you got to do some airline work, passenger airline, at least on a regional level before you get hired to do that. You don't necessarily uh, have to yes. fly. And the thing is, there's there's so few pilots right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. There are airlines that are paying people to go to school. Yeah. To go yeah. to school yeah. because they need pilots so bad. So, yep. yep. Yeah. If I wasn't turning 50, <laughs> you know, it might be an, it might be a, an, an option. But yeah. Well, I have another niece who actually is my niece that uh, had a. Oh, Four or five years ago, uh, her dad bought her and her sister when they lived on a farm, a KE-100. And it had like 800 miles on it. And shortly after they got it, it spun the big end bearing. So I completely rebuilt the motor for them, gave it back to them. They drove it 24 miles and put it in the back of the barn. And about a year ago, they sold the farm and it ended up in my garage. And I was kind of like, okay, you're going to sell it to me. You're going to sell it to somebody else. No, we, we don't know what we're going to do with it. Well, my niece just bought her own first house out in the suburbs. And she said, you know, I'd really like to have that, that, uh, little KE dual sport to ride around the neighborhood. I said, okay, it's got 21 year old tires on it. The carbs gummed up because they didn't ride it and they didn't take the fuel out of it. It leaked the line from the oil tank down to the injector was so brittle that it was leaking and uh it it was just covered in hay dust and it was it was like okay after i got rid of mine i'll work on yours well i sold mine and immediately it was what about mine so i was like okay so i got into it and i ordered the 
Shinko Golden Boy tires for it, which is the only dual sport tires that are available in the sizes for that. It's the only tire you can get for a KE100. So got that and a couple of tubes. They arrived. I went to put them on and I very, very carefully put the front tire on being very careful not to pinch the tube, went to air it up, <laughs> doesn't hold air. Yeah. And I, in the process, as I'm doing this, I'm looking at it going, something's wrong here. And I realized it's missing a spoke, the spoke and the nipple completely missing. How does that happen? I took the tire off. There was no nipple up inside the, the rim. It yeah. wasn't sticking out. I was like, wow, this is really weird. So I said, you know what? I'm, I've got a friend of mine in town, owns a motorcycle dealership. I worked there in the 80s, and I was like, okay, I'm going to take it down. I brought him one tube. The other tube was in it but broke. And I also said the front rim strip was pretty bad off, probably needs to be replaced. And I want you to replace the spoke. She goes, okay, well, you can go order the spoke from the parts counter. I'm like, this is a service ticket. Well, go up to them and see if they have it in stock. So I go up to the parts. Nope, we'll have to order it. I said, okay, and I left. At the end of the day, they call me. Okay, you can pick up your uh, your wheels. I was like, oh, so you were able to get a spoke? No. Did you order a spoke? I'm like, wait a minute. You put the tire on without replacing the spoke. That does me no good. Why would I want you to mount a tire and a tube when I want to replace the spoke? I asked you to replace it. Well, that's not how I understood it. Yeah. I'm like, does this make any why did i say to you okay i'll leave them for a couple days then if you don't have it in stock why would i say that to you if i wasn't going to have you replace the spoke this is well i you're, you're t this is a different story than what i understood you to tell me i was like you're an idiot i said <laughs> i tell you what order the spoke on the service ticket replace it i want you to true it I want you to put the tire on and I want you to balance it. Is it that hard? That's what you do. You are a motorcycle service place. Yeah. So anyways, I now have her KE100 ready to go with a rebuilt carb, new fuel lines, new oil lines, everything's ready. No wheels. <laughs> so sometime next week, they're going to get a spoke and nipple in and i'm really glad it was an outer one because i found out the inner ones have been discontinued yeah so it's like ooh, okay i'm really glad that uh i was able to get that so i am now in the middle of hopefully a very 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 short ke 100 project and when i'm done with that then i can start working on some Boltaco stuff so. <laughs> the projects do never end does it feel that way sometimes like yeah. Maybe well, in a good way or a bad way, but just always, always doing projects. I I think it was on the Garage Journal forum. Somebody linked to a Petrolicious video about a guy that built his own Ferrari 250 Roadster. Wow. He found an unused 250 body that the guy built basically as a prototype, and Ferrari didn't think it was up to their standards. So it never got built into a car mm -hmm. and it was still sitting in, in white, never used in Italy. And this guy was like, I know I will never be able to afford a Ferrari 250. It's my dream car. So he went out and found a Ferrari. He couldn't find one of the original motors because there's like 
six mm-hmm. of them, something like that. But he found a four liter Ferrari motor for it, found all Ferrari parts, had the cast parts welded up and then finished to look like cast parts. So it's a, it's a fake recreation, but it's all authentic Ferrari parts. It's not like, yeah. you know, it's got a Ford engine in it or anything. And the guy posted it and he says, here's a guy that went through all this because he knew what he wanted and the, and building it was a means to an end. He knew what he wanted to own and he had to build it because he couldn't afford it any other way. And he, asked the question he said do you go out to your workshop and you find projects to do for the fun of fabricating and fixing and tweaking and tuning or do you have in your head i want this and the only way i can get it is to go through the hassle of fabricating and tweaking and tuning and building and sourcing parts and all that kind of stuff and I thought it was a really interesting question. And reading back through the responses was equally interesting. And most people were like, well, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. Yep. Boltakenstein, totally an excuse to just learn fabrication. The Honda was never supposed to be a project. I resented every new complication. And I was so glad when it was done because it was never supposed to take up that much time. So there's two perfect examples of having a project to do the work and doing the work to get done with the project. So you can have something that you wanted. So, yeah, usually it's the latter for me. I feel like I just, I want something that I can't exactly buy. So I just have to build it. And it always seems like it's going to be more simple when you first start planning it, you know, and then five years later, you're still working on it because the fork seals are leaking all over the ground. Well, that's the thing is, that's why I got into motorcycles in the first place. First of all, the fun of riding them. They're just neat experience when you're out on the road. But also I could look at them and go, I know what that part does. I know what that part does. I can see all the parts on it. And I, they just bolt apart. Yep. You know, they bolt together and unbolt to come apart. How hard can it be right. <laughs> compared with a car that's got all kinds of nooks and cranny and I don't know what's in them. And you got to, you know, learn body work and, you know, either, you know, learn how to TIG weld or fill with lead or all the other things that you have to do to make a car look good. It's like, you don't like your fuel tank and it's dented up. You buy another one, you put another one on there. So it, motorcycles are kind of by nature deceiving in their simplicity. Um, speaking of simple, I saw a new Royal Enfield 650, one of them yeah. uh, the other day. <clears throat> I want one so bad. Looks really good. It actually yeah. looked really good. It looked a little. It looked very fifties in the back, in the sense, you know, it looked a little. It looked everything looked a little smaller than it should be in the back. Yeah. Um, but look at it. Will definitely need aftermarket pipes. It does not sound particularly good. It's awful quiet, and it just yeah. It makes. It, uh, I, I don't want to say. I don't want to say. Uh, what was the, what was that BMW Cruiser from the late nineties? Oh yeah, the twelve hundred C. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know how that sounded like a like a hot popcorn machine? Yeah, popping. That it sounded it, like it, a broken sewing machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was of a similar kind of sound. I was <laughs> at the dealership and started one up, and I I was overwhelmed with the sound of it when he when he revved it up for me too. It needs a set of pea shooter stay in tunes or something like that something yeah just... but at least that 270 degree crankshaft gives it 
some character. The engine yeah. has character. Yeah, like yeah. If, with, with the right set of pipes, it, I think it would sound good with that crankshaft oh, yeah. firing. Um, but I just love the way they look. In fact, uh, it was a couple weeks ago. They had a up in Seattle, a um, Royal Enfield demo day. And I tried so hard to get to it because I wanted to ride one so bad. And I tried everything to get it to work, uh, to get myself up there. But it just wasn't going to work. So, um, but definitely that's one of the motorcycles that's on my like relatively affordable bucket list that I'm going to have in the next couple years. Uh, you know, it's like, it reminds me of that Yamaha TX750, but like infinitely more reliable. And it's incredible. They sell those motorcycles new with free roadside assistance. And I think like an unlimited mileage warranty for three years or something like that. And they're what, 6,500 bucks or something? Yeah. They're yeah. 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 Uh, the, the downside of living literally a mile down the street from the Ducati dealer is that as, as you're out and about sometimes uh, here, you see some pretty tasty stuff. Um, there was a 1098 done in Tiffany blue and white. And it doesn't sound good. Or does that combination doesn't sound good, but actually looked pretty sharp. Yeah. Uh, and then there was an older, I'm assuming it was a 900 uh, monster that went ripping by that had a set of kind of loud termies and a dry clutch still. Yeah. And it was just that, oh, Oh, yeah. baby. <laughs> you know, you talk so dirty. <laughs> exactly. I have to say in, in this moment when I'm wrestling with buying a little 250 or something, my local triumph dealer got in a Bonneville T120 diamond edition, mm-hmm. which is the one that's, they're only building like 900 of them. They've got chrome, polished chrome everywhere. Beautiful pearl white paint with black side covers um, and kind of a ghosted union Jack motif on the top of the tank. And, and, Oh, I, I it's only $500 over the standard T one twenty. It's limited edition as John Bloor's signature on a the certificate of authenticity as a limited edition. And it's just gorgeous. And I was really I had a moment of, could I spend 12 grand? Okay, yeah, no, never mind. But yeah. the fact that there was one locally that was unspoken for, because I, I had heard that they had all pre-sold. And that turned out to be a little bit more hype because there's a couple of dealers that have them on Cycle Trader. But I was, for a moment, I was like, if I really wanted to have a dream all-time bucket list, keep it for the rest of your life motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And then reality reared its ugly head, and I was like, "Yeah, no, that that's that's not going to happen." The, the, uh, I do like the Speed Twin version of that a lot. I actually really like the Street Twin for the money. Or is that what it is? The Street Twin? No, the the Speed Twin is the twelve hundred. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. It's yeah. the T one twenty bobber motor in the Street Twin chassis with some different side covers on it and stuff. But even the even the low end Street Twin is a really neat bike. I would, I would love to have one, but it's not going to happen. Uh, I was going to go into some other stuff. Uh, the Can-Am, uh, dealers meeting was yesterday and all their reveals for 2020. I was going to talk a little bit. They came out with a, uh, 
concept prototype electric motorcycle that actually looks really cool. And when I was debating whether I wanted a new bike, I also was looking at the, I think it's uh, CSC, the same people that make the little uh, 250 Chinese adventure bike. Mm-hmm. They have an electric motorcycle called the City Slicker, which looks pretty cool. And I was like, oh, a little electric bike. That'd be cool. And then I saw just today, I saw some video of them riding the new Can-Am electric motorcycle. I think it's called the CT1, which is kind of a small bike, but it's got kind of meaty tires on it and stuff. And it's it's actually looks really cool. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that could be cool. And I would like to see where that ends up in a year or two. It uh, reminds me of if you see Honda's um, sort of new but retro looking EV car, it has a little bit of that flavor to it. To me, it looks like if you took something like a Honda uh like their 300 twin, what, what is it? The CB 300 R and a Vitplin 401. And you put them in a blender. Mm-hmm. I, I, by the way, I saw a Vitplin 701 when we were in Montreal a few weeks ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. It looks real. I don't know that I want to ride it, but it looks really good. Yeah. I, I found out that you can, you can order a kit to put tubular handlebars rather than those really low clip ons on it. Yeah. And I was like, well, that makes a big difference if I didn't have to, you know, grab onto my knees to ride the thing. Yeah. And then I realized I sat on the seat when I looked at one in the dealership and it was just the worst, hardest, most made, uncomfortable little made KTM, thing. Made KTM seats look good. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Ten times worse. It was, it was like sitting on an upholstered brick. Yeah. And, and then um, our friend uh, Brad Brunell was out riding a Harley Davidson CVO today. Uh, on for a, I knew he was out at a press launch. I didn't know yeah, what yeah. he was doing. Yeah, it's a Harley CVO he's riding. Um, so I jokingly said when he posted a picture on Facebook about it, I said, "So let me guess, your entire car collection doesn't cost as much as that motorcycle?" And he goes, "Exactly." So yeah. I said, "Over or under forty five grand?" He goes, "A little over forty one thousand dollars." Man, I'm just like, are you kidding? He I liked it. He he actually liked it a lot. Um, and you know, given that he lives in Reno where it's nothing but like open roads, it yeah. probably would be a great motorcycle for there. But, uh, but yeah, it's like $41,000. No, thank you. Yeah. I don't care how good that bike is. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. tough to swallow. Considering our new truck bought a long bed, four wheel drive Lariat F-150 with a bunch of options on it and the FX four pack. And it was like 56. Right. So whole truck. And we got, I mean, that was MSRP. Technology. We we got it. Yeah. It it has the, the little jog wheel for backing up your trailer. You you look at the screen and you got the little jog dial for steering. Um, And we got it at 0% interest. And we, it was a discount of like, I think we paid 52 for it out the door when we got all done with, you know, incentives and discounts yeah. and stuff like that. So when you're talking less than $10,000, less than that <laughs> for a m- twin cylinder motorcycle. 
Mm-hmm. Like, wow. It's the height of 1978 technology there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I had actually been working with Brad uh, on some on another totally different project that I won't. Uh, oh, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, I've, I've been the boxer sport one. No, this is oh. this is his camper trailer. Oh, you do know about that. Yeah, yeah. 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 His, his scamp. He uh, he contacted my employer Peterson for LED lighting, so it's going to have all Peterson LED lighting compliments of the marketing director, my boss. So yeah, um, he's getting all spiffy lights for it. Yeah, he's promised to feature the brand name prominently on Jalopnik at some point. So. Cool. But uh, he's contacted us about being a guest, and uh, I didn't have him on this month because we had so much uh, stuff that we I knew we were going to have to update, but we might have him on next month if we can arrange to get everybody together. Yeah, and I floated that to him when I saw him at Radwood. I was like, hey, man, you got to be a guest on our show here. Because um, at that point, he had uh, done a demo on the live wire not long before... I spoke to him, so he's you know got some perspective that we need to. Yeah, uh, and he yeah just definitely. Rode the, he just rode the FTR twelve hundred as well. Yeah. Well, we'll have on next month. We'll I'll reach out to him and see if we can make that happen. Uh, I have to ask you what did, what did you end up taking to Radwood? Just myself and my family. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I I didn't because okay. um, the plan was to take my Kenny Roberts RZ. And... Well, I knew you weren't going to take that, but I thought you were talking about yeah. possibly taking your your uh, Paseo. Uh, no, I had a Tercel. Tercel, that's right. Yeah, but I, yeah. Um, I didn't take anything. If I would have taken the RZ, there was only one other motorcycle there. And they had an award for best motorcycle. And it was just like a really average KDX 200 dirt bike. Oh, and wow. so like, I, I certainly would have won the motorcycle award and like, oh, I wish I would have just like put the parts on the motorcycle to make it look like it was complete and just taken it there and displayed it, you know, pushed it in. Um, I could have gotten an award, but oh well, maybe next year. Although next year there will probably be a bunch more vehicles. There is a good turnout at Radwood this year, but this was also the first in the Northwest, so I imagine next year will probably be a little bit bigger. So, and yeah, um, The Radwood in Detroit is actually next Saturday. I thought it was yeah. not. For some reason, I thought it was later than that, but I will have to try and Are you going to try to go to it? yeah. yeah. It's 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 downtown on the river. So, yeah, they they really do a good job putting those together. I'll say that. Fantastic job. They're really well organized. So, Pete, I'm not going to bring up another subject at this point. We're doing it a little later. It's kind of like the late night version here, yeah. uh, especially for Eric. So uh, <laughs> thanks to both you guys for doing it. That was all good. Actually, actually moving it later actually worked out a little bit better for me. So, good. okay. Well, then we'll do this again in a month. How about that? Sounds yeah. good. Okay. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my co-host for doing this with me, and we'll see you all next month. So long. So long.